Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. We have created a generation that for the first time in human history basically doesn't know how to cook. They've abdicated that responsibility to the food industry. So historically, children's food was made by people who knew them and loved them, and their well-being was close at heart. Today, most food that kids eat are prepared by people whose main motivation is profit. I'm Dr. Oz, and this is the Dr. Oz Podcast. We're speaking uh, with Dr. David Ludwig from Children's Hospital in Boston. He's co-founder and director of the Optimal Weight for Life program and author of the new book, Ending the Food Fight, Guide Your Child to a Healthy Weight in a Fast Food, Fake Food World. And Children's Hospital in Boston, for those of you who do not realize, this is one of the, the nation's premier institutions, a place that has been the home of, uh, of many of our nation's medical leaders, especially obviously in the pediatric field, because this is a children's hospital. Um, but this is a, a wonderful weight loss clinic for kids. Uh, has done a lot of groundbreaking work, particularly in low glycemic diets. Now, what the heck, David? By the way, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. What does low glycemic really mean? Well, you know, for thousands of years, humans have been eating foods that take a while to digest and are slowly absorbed into the body, sustaining our... our our satiety after a meal, that's the sense of fullness, and promoting good metabolism. In the last 50 years, for two reasons, uh, the glycemic index of our diet has increased. And glycemic index is a, a technical term, but what it basically means is how food affects blood sugar. Um, over the last 50 years, in part because of low-fat diets, the carbs in our diet have gone way up. But even more importantly, the processing of those carbs has increased. So whereas 50 years ago, grandma used to make steel-cut oats that took a half hour to prepare, uh, but it also digested slowly and raised blood sugar slowly. Today, we're eating instant oats, or worse, uh, Fruit Loops, 
were the bagel with fat-free cream cheese. These turn into sugar almost instantaneously in the body. But what goes up must come down. So while blood sugar may surge for 30 minutes after one of those meals, two hours later, it's crashing below where it started, even fasting. And how do people feel when their blood sugar is crashing? Well, they're probably irritable, fussy, distracted. And with regard to a topic that I'm very interested in, obesity, they become hungry. And we, we and others have shown that the same calories in a high glycemic form stimulate the consumption of hundreds of extra calories throughout the day. Why is there a debate over this? I mean, I, I know the glycemic uh, index from several of, the, several of the books that some of which you've been involved in that have publicized that as a, as a way that maybe we could start to lose weight by taking foods that were lower glycemic index foods, you get that stable blood sugar that you're referring to. Then I, you know, a paper comes out and says, well, it's overstated. The, in fact, carrots have a high glycemic index, but they're good for you. You should eat them. What's the debate? Why can't simple things yeah. like this be agreed on? Yeah. Well, glycemic index is a technical term, and the science is clearly evolving. In fact, um, the whole notion was proposed just in 1981 when we think about other nutritional factors like vitamins, many of them we've known for a half a century or a century. So the science is evolving. But the other issue is that um, as important as glycemic index or load is, no single dietary factor can ever define a healthful diet. Not even the most ardent advocates of low-fat diets would say drink Coca-Cola all day long because it has zero grams of fat. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the notion can be put into practice too simplistically, and that triggers a reaction from the nutritional establishment. But the other thing is that it is a radical notion. You know, for so many years, we were taught that if you don't want fat on your body, you shouldn't put fat into your body. Right. Kinda, it makes sense, right? So we were all following low-fat, high-carbohydrate, high-glycemic diets. Many researchers built their careers on this notion. And that paradigm seems to be crashing down with the publication of many studies that show that the amount of fat relative to carbohydrate in our diet doesn't importantly affect our body weight. Um, so we're trying to create a new nutritional paradigm. And the, the concept of glycemic index remains controversial. But I think in the next few years, there's going to be a growing consensus that whatever we call it, diets that are based on natural, whole, less processed foods that slowly release their nutrients into our body. Best support weight management, but also reduction of heart disease, diabetes risk. And one other uh, very interesting topic is ADD. You know, attention deficit disorder has increased in prevalence with the obesity epidemic and with the glycemic impact of our diets. Now, how would a 10-year-old boy feel sitting in social studies class at 11 o'clock in the morning after having that bagel and fat-free cream cheese with his blood sugar crashing to very low levels? Is he going to be paying attention to the instructor sitting politely and concentrating? <laughs> or might the teacher think he needs a certain medication such as Ritalin? Now, I'm not saying that diet is the only cause of ADD. Clearly, there are important uh, genetic or other factors that place ri that increase risk, but why shouldn't diet affect not just our body weight, but our emotional and psychological uh, and mental well-being? Now, we, you know, we just went into a couple of school systems in northern New Jersey, and I was asking a very similar question, and the teachers around the table 
heartily agreed that you could almost always predict what the child had for breakfast or for lunch, for that matter, by how they perform afterwards. For the very reasons you stated, when they're all dozing off at uh, 1030 in the morning because they got their sugar and caffeine high in the morning from their soft drink, it's not hard to predict that. And likewise, in the afternoon, when after the you know, very high glycemic load lunch, they're passing out at uh, you know sugar coma at uh, two in the afternoon. Again, teachers are ineffective. It makes it frustrating for them as well. So, so some of these are technical concepts like glycemic index and load, and it's important that the scientists get that right. But um, we try to reduce these concepts to very simple terms for patients and their families that come to our weight management program. It's called the Optimal Weight for Life or OWL program. Um, and the way I'd like to describe it is uh, even a five-year-old in less than five minutes can get this cold. Mm. Um, I asked them to tell me about what foods humans would have eaten while living in nature. Or think back to being, perhaps being, imagining that you're a caveman. What foods would you eat? And five-year-olds quickly list a series of um, natural foods like vegetables, fruits, berries, nuts, grains, beans, um, whole grain products, uh, fish or, or meat. And then I ask them, what are fake foods? What are foods that come from a factory, usually highly processed in a package? And then we look at their food diaries that they brought in preparation for the clinic visit. And I ask them to circle all of the fake foods in their diet. And sometimes three-fourths or 90% of their food diaries are circled. And when they see that, and especially if they're involved in the process of identifying it, um, it can lead to a profound transformation in awareness, just like for many young kids seeing the movie Supersize Me, altered their eating habits around fast food. Now, nobody thinks that fast food is healthy, but why do people go on eating this stuff? meal after meal, day after day. The, that knowledge that we hold in our brain needs to be transformed into a, so to speak, gut knowledge. And when kids see it for themselves, for example, the movie, when they saw, uh, uh, who is it, Morgan Spurlock right. throwing up after a fast food meal, they get it. And sometimes they'll give up fast food permanently. I, I love that scene, by the way. You know, he's sitting, <laughs> it reminded me of a trip Lisa and I took to, to France. Oh. You know, we, story. we were we were in the northern coast. We were in the northern coast of Normandy, and you know a lot of cheese there. So we were going from place to place, having lots of cheese. And our oldest daughter, Daphne, she was probably about I don't know ten or twelve. Then. No, much younger. She was like six. She was, she, was, she was journaling and she was writing now. We just went to this place, had some cheese. We just went to this place, had more cheese. I just had more cheese. I don't feel very good. I think I'm going to throw up. Next entry is I did. <laughs> <laughs> so Morgan's we're like sitting in the car. Yeah. And uh, he's forcing down, again, the movie's premise is that you're, uh, you're having fast foods only for 30 days. Yeah. And he's checked his blood counts beforehand. He's going to monitor yeah. all this stuff. So uh, five, four or five days into the process of eating this food, before he becomes adjusted to eating this junk, uh, he's uh, eating it. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he just vomits. And uh, it's revolting, of course, to see it. But then after that, he gets very comfortable eating the junk food. It becomes okay. He's always hungry for well, it. We also fact. get addicted to it. Well, you, exactly. I mean, yeah. even if it's not the food itself. But well, actually, let me ask you that. I mean, you, you, we think that fast food is high in fat, but um, if you look at the nutrient composition, it's actually much higher in high glycemic carbs than it is in fat. You know, we did an analysis of this about uh, fifty-five or sixty percent of it. Well, you think of the soft drink; mm -hmm. that's all sugar, yep. right? Yep. The bun is all 
refined starch that breaks into sugar instantaneously in the body. Yep. The French uh, fries. The French fries. Yep. How about the ketchup? What's the first ingredient? Yeah, and then sugar. you get the pie Bingo. at the end, you know, the little hot apple pies. Right. So let me ask, what, what, is, is the sugar addictive? Well, you know, this is one of these really hot-button notions in, um, in nutritional science, and I have to tread carefully so that I don't get my a, colleagues a, upset a, with me. A but, promising career ended but, yeah, exactly. <laughs> a 15-second jaunt. Um, you know, the, the other advantage of using this notion of glycemic uh, impact of foods is that it, we realize that, first of all, all starches aren't good, but all sugars aren't bad. What's the composition of fruit? I mean, most of the nutrients, most of the calories in fruit is sugar. But these are a variety of natural fruit sugars, um, not just table sugar, sucrose. And they're wrapped up in package, in, in a package, which is called fiber. And those, even though it's sugar, it, it releases those nutrients slowly into the body. So I don't think that sugar per se is, is the enemy. However... The way it's been um, corrupted, it's, it's, per, its use has been perverted in the food industry by adding to all sorts of foods, some of which would never have had sugar historically, like bread. Mm -hmm. um, it's adding an extremely poor quality of nutrient and bumping up the calorie load in a way that has, I think, a tremendous negative impact on public health. So is sugar addictive? High glycemic sugars, as they're being used in the United States today, I think can cause not just a psychological um, craving for it, but it can cause swings in blood sugar and hormones that actually drive consumption. We have a lot more questions to get to, but first, a quick break. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty, beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb. Tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store.
Glycemic index is a concept that is the foundation of books like South Beach Diet, Sugar Busters. I mean, a, a lot of diets that I have friends that have been on and seem to be effective uh, for them in, in losing weight. But there are folks out there who feel that thin people are just lucky. And uh, they're often the heavier folks. And of course, the thin people think the fat people are just lazy lugs. So uh, if you sort of combine those two thoughts together, they come down to some basic biologic battles. And one concept that's been thrown out is the thrifty gene. Right. Yay, nay. Is that really an important problem? Well, um, do genes affect our body weight? Absolutely. Um, and that has been the front lines of research for most of the last 30 years um, in obesity. But clearly, our genes aren't causing the obesity epidemic. How do we know that? Um, well, unless you were living precariously close to a nuclear power plant, your genes haven't changed very much in the last 30 years. And yet obesity rates have tripled in children um, and, and tr tripled in adults and continue on upward. So genes affect an individual's predisposition, their vulnerability to what's been called the toxic environment. But it's the environment that has caused this epidemic. Uh, another way of looking at that is that... Um, you know, that if you could transport children today back to the environmental conditions that existed in the United States in the 1960s, most of the epidemic would go away. Now, we don't have a time machine available, mm -hmm. but our program and, and um, the book that we have just published aims to show a way to create those protective environmental conditions in the home. Um, ultimately... We hope that we can transform the world into a healthier place to support children and families. But until we do, we can create a, a, a bubble of protection around children in the home. Can I ask you a relatively provocative question? Do you have kids? That's not the provocative question. Well, there's two answers. I, you know, I have thousands of them. Okay, they, so that's and fine. The, and the other answer is that I'm happy to say I'm engaged to be married for the first time. Congratulations. I managed to make it to my 40s. Wonderful. And, um, we're, we're hoping to. And I'll actually become a stepdad soon. Congratulations. And we're hoping to have maybe uh, one or two others. Wonderful. Well, that wasn't my provocative question. <laughs> Observing the children, the thousands of them that you treat, do they eat significantly differently than you did when you were 13, 15? Because when we were growing up, there was still fast food. I, I remember I could eat, I grew up in Philly, we could eat, I could eat two hoagies mm. as a 13-year-old. Mm. Ridiculous. They're this big. I can eat barely half of one now. Do, are they, are kids really eating differently than we did when we were growing up? Well, back, you know, I, I, you, you know, you're probably about 24, so <laughs> yeah. I'm not uh, sure how to compare the eras. I think but we're the same age. When, you know, in the 70s, right. fast food was an occasional treat, and importantly, families cooked at home. Today, fast food has become a daily, sometimes many times a day, and I think the single most disturbing trend is that we have created a generation that for the first time in human history basically doesn't know how to cook. They've abdicated that responsibility to the food industry. So historically, children's food was made by people who knew them and loved them, mm -hmm. and their well-being was close at heart. Today, most food that kids eat are prepared by people whose main motivation is profit, not the well-being of the child. Mm -hmm. And in a certain sense... The obesity epidemic is almost the logical outcome of that choice. But I do want to say that re I think reestablishing a relationship to food and cooking many meals at home is going to be essential to answering the obesity epidemic, but it doesn't have to be hard. 
doesn't have to be a choice between fast food takeout on one hand and a two-hour French gourmet Julia Child-type right. meal on the other. There right. are simple ways of preparing food, especially on a weekend, and then reusing them throughout the week um, that can make healthy eating easy and fun. Well, the provocative part of my question is... I'm oh, we haven't to, even gotten to no, that No, I'm sorry to hijack this question. I was, no, that's what I was waiting for. I wouldn't um, do you think there's a possibility that what we're putting in our food could be contributing to the obesity epidemic, namely growth hormone? I mean, we our farmers specifically feed their livestock foods to make them get fatter faster. Mm-hmm. Is there any way that's being translated into our food sources? Well... There, there are things we're putting into our food that are absolutely causing the obesity epidemic. I would put way above on the list things like trans fatty acids, hydrogenated fats, high fructose corn syrup, and the long list of extremely high calorie, poor quality foods. Now, um, the hormones, both the ones that would be added to the food supply through animals or, or, or other hormonally related food substances that could actually be directly added to the food, and the natural hormones that exist in animals that are going to be concentrated due to modern farming practices could, in theory, play a role. There isn't a lot of research, um, but I'll mention one example. Um, for thousands of years, humans have consumed dairy, but those animals would have been milked through part of the year, and then when they got pregnant, the milking would have stopped, um, their milk would have dried up, the animal would have had a calf, who would have suckled, and then for the next few months, milk would be available. Today, due to modern industrial dairy practices, animals are being milked throughout their pregnancy, and we all know what happens to these hormone levels during pregnancy. In a, in a woman or in a dairy cow, the estrogen and progesterone triple or quadruple. It goes right into the milk, and so we're consuming milk that is basically different from the ones that um, humans would have eaten for centuries. So... Um, could that be promoting earlier puberty in girls, as we've seen? Could it be increasing risk for cancer that manifests itself throughout a lifetime? There is, in fact, research now that links dairy consumption with prostate cancer in men and potentially other kinds of cancers. Okay, that was that was my question. Thank you. How did I do? Perfect. Yeah, like you can have the show back now, Mamet. <laughs> I've, been, I've been set up. The, the other thing Lisa always asks about is whether homogenation is a process that's detrimental to our well-being. Yeah. Any insights on that? Yeah, I, I don't know any, I don't, I don't have any data about that. Um, you know, it's, I think it's usually done electrically, basically mm. breaks up the fat globules into such small um, little particles that it then distributes throughout the water part of the milk right. and it doesn't separate. Um, but but when your body would break it down, when the bile would attach to the fat to break it down in the milk, you can't do that anymore because there's a hydrogen bond there on that fat. Well, hydrogenation shouldn't hydrogenate, um, homogenization shouldn't, Isn't does not milk? hydrogenate okay. the fat. No, that's, those are different processes. Hydrogenation of fat is the single most toxic thing that's happened to the food supply in the last 50 years. There's no question about it. Um, You know, every cell in the body is surrounded by a fat-containing membrane. So every time that a cell needs to signal with its neighbor, every hormone, every neurologic process takes takes place through that vital cell membrane. Um, Humans, most animals would never have these trans fatty acids. It's a, a fat that has an unusual kink 
and it alters membrane fluidity, it basically could affect every biological process um, in the body. And so, in a certain sense, it's not at all surprising that trans fatty acids, this hydrogenated fat so prevalent in um, fast food that uh, Commissioner Frieden is trying to get rid of, that that would affect not just the risk for type 2 diabetes and heart disease, but neurological problems, body weight, cancers, and the like. Let me just follow up on uh, two points that you made. The first is high fructose corn syrup, which you listed as one of the ingredients that's been added to the food supply. I made a comment along those lines in a recent Oprah show, and as I always do, I get you know the usual emails from everybody <laughs> complaining and moaning and groaning from the different trade associations. And there are, there are more trade associations than you can imagine. There's a you know simple carbohydrate trade association. I can't imagine you know, getting together and say, you know, <laughs> let's get hold of it. There, there's actually a refined wheat trade association. Seriously? Yeah. And, oh, uh, but there's also the high fructose corn syrup team. And the, I don't, by the way, these are, these are not, I don't think, evil people. They are smart folks who firmly believe that the science doesn't justify us giving them a hard time. And the high fructose corn syrup folks, in a series of email uh, letters back and forth, I mean, you know, a good, good amount of data they sent to me, argue that high fructose corn syrup is 55% of the, 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 the sucrose uh, and uh, of, of the fructose. And uh, as opposed to regular sugar, that's 50%. Sounds like thank you for smoking, if you ask me. But maybe, but it's, it's, so it's 10% more. And uh, they've you know, sent me a bunch of articles arguing that there's not that much of a difference between high fructose corn syrup and regular table sugar. You agree? Well, I'm not uh, frequently in agreement with the Refined Wheat Growers Association <laughs> or the um, High Fructose um, Corn Syrup Lobbying Council. But on this point, I, I do agree to a point. Um, I think there's a tremendous misunderstanding about this product. High fructose corn syrup is, well, sucrose, which is table sugar, historically made from wheat, uh, sugarcane, and now made from beets and other things, um, is two molecules linked together, one molecule of glucose and one molecule of fructose. And now the body can break that bond in an instant. So it's basically like drinking, if you drink a sugar solution, it's like drinking half glucose and half fructose. High fructose corn syrup is got just a little bit more fructose. And it's also completely unclear that fructose is worse than glucose. Are we getting technical enough? No, it's okay. <laughs> so 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 they're right. There is no difference. But that doesn't leave them off the hook. Um, it, you know, it's not that high fructose corn syrup is as good as table sugar. It's that table sugar is as bad as high fructose corn syrup. And the additional problem is that this product has made sugar so phenomenally cheap, um, together with the farm subsidies that are the number one product is, of course, corn, corn for high fructose corn syrup. It's become so phenomenally cheap that there's this tremendous incentive for the food industry to add it to the least likely places of our food supply and to um, find selling soft drinks, which is just a high fructose corn syrup solution, so immensely profitable. Would you recommend your patients to drink diet sodas? Um, this is a situation where, which I describe as good, better, best. Okay. Um, I, I think as a first step to get off of um, sugar-sweetened beverages, diet beverages, clearly, no debate, are better for body weight. But I have some concerns about it. Um, one is that 
it creates a, a separation between two linked biological processes. Normally, when we taste something sweet, our blood sugar rises, mm -hmm. and we secrete insulin, and our body expects blood sugar to rise. Artificial sweeteners uncouple that. So we taste sweetness, and our body can start releasing a little bit of insulin, but our blood sugar doesn't go up. So it could cause this mismatch in our metabolism, and that could have some um, unhealthy effects for metabolism. But the other thing I really worry about is what I call the infantilization of our taste buds. You know, kids are born with an innate preference for sugar, fat, and salt. And over time, those preferences mature. Otherwise, if they didn't, kids would have starved to death once they, you know, were weaned off of breast milk. Um, the consumption of so much highly intensively sweetened foods keeps children craving, you know, these primary flavors. And so they never develop a willingness or a tolerance to eat more healthful foods yeah, it's uh, you know I'm so, I must say I'm so, I'm so stimulated by this conversation. Not only because you express it quite beautifully, but also these are practical insights that I can just see you delivering in the clinic in Boston Children's Hospital uh, to all the folks uh, who are now able to benefit from you. We're speaking with Dr. David Ludwig. He's at Children's Hospital in Boston, uh, the founder and, and uh, co-founder and director of the Optimal Weight for Life program, and author of the new book Ending the Food Fight: Guide Your Child to a Healthy Weight in a Fast Food Fake Food World. There's lots more to come after the break. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb. Tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Let me just start off with uh, a point that you made just before the the, uh, the break. If you look at the maturity speed of the children, young girls are a good example because they start to develop larger breasts, they, they develop pubic hair, start to have menses, uh, they start to menstruate uh, now at eight, nine years of age. Uh, is, is this something that's from the food supply, you think? And if so, what are the culprits? Yeah, well, 
it, it's quite clear that the age of menarche, the when a girl first has her period, has been declining throughout the last century. Um, some of that has been due to just improved nutrition. So an undernourished girl will have delayed pubertal development. The body seems to need a certain amount of fat, a critical amount of fat, to send a signal to the girl's brain, go through puberty. So then that makes sense, doesn't it? Because you wouldn't want to initiate a pregnancy unless you had enough energy yep. stores where the infant wouldn't survive and the mother might not either. Um, so up till the 1960s or so, I think that decline has to do with positive de developments in the food supply, like people are getting enough protein now. But some, since the 60s, something else has happened. That decline has continued beyond what I think is the normal natural age for a girl to begin puberty, which is starting breast development at around 10 and a half and then periods around 12. We see, especially in Hispanic and African-American girls, um, initiation of puberty at age seven, sometimes six. Right. So what's causing this? Probably the obesity epidemic explains most of it. When um, an individual, and especially a child, is obese, their hormones become exacerbated. And what I mean by that, there's something called insulin resistance. You may have heard of that before. That's uh, when someone has too much fat in their body, the ability to process this hormone insulin is decreased. So the body increases that hormone level to compensate. That's called insulin resistance. But insulin is one of the most potent growth factors in the body. Um, and so this may explain why obesity is linked to not just excessive growth, so obese kids go through puberty early and tend to grow faster, but there's also an increased risk for cancer because insulin stimulates the growth and, and uh, development of tissues throughout the body. But about some of the other arguments that have been made, uh, Lisa kept pestering you earlier about the, the, the hormones in our, in our milk and our beef. Yeah. Uh, are those in high enough doses? The fact that we're yeah. drinking milk year-round from uh, uh, cows that perhaps had been pregnant at the time they were being milked, are these all possible explanations? Or are these sort of outlaying yeah. there? I mean, you're an endocrinologist. Yeah. is an area that I would trust your advice on just about more than anybody else's. Well, it's hard to know. Um, it certainly could be a contributor, and I would absolutely not discount it um, uh, as part of the picture. But my sense is that, first and foremost, the obesity epidemic, you know, that's the base of the iceberg, and um, that's probably explaining most of what's going on. And we know that obesity, you know, there, there was this debate a few years ago about whether obesity and its effects on mortality may have been uh, overestimated. Now, that's clearly due to problems with the study, and we can go through that if you want. Studies since then have um, absolutely demonstrated that the heavier a person is, the greater the risk, not just for diabetes and heart disease, but for mortality throughout life. Um, so that, you know, that has to be addressed. Beyond that, hormones in the food, or another area for you to work, worry about, is pollutants that are in the category of endocrine disruptors. You know, everything that we, most of the things we throw into landfills you know, have some kind of petroleum base to them. And many of these products look like hormones in the body. And they leach into the water supply, even just, you know, to really cause a little paranoia here, just pulling off plastic. Well, if you microwave in plastic, it 
microwaving yeah. in plastic or just storing foods in plastic right. for long periods of time. You know, these substances leach into the foods. Now, in small doses, once in a while, yeah, we're both drinking bottled water and plastic. Um, happily, they're not <laughs> sugar-sweetened beverages. <laughs> but, you know, in small doses, it, it almost certainly isn't a big problem. But day after day, throughout our, our, our diet, our, our water supply, you know, could it be explaining the dramatic increases in breast cancer and other and some neurodegenerative diseases. Now, it's possible. When you speak of the neuro uh, disruptors, uh, you mentioned the, the plastics. There are others as well. Are, are there particular ones that you worry about more than others? Or, uh, let me ask you more practically. If you're yeah. giving uh, uh, one of your upcoming stepchildren advice on endocrine disruptors, would you say stop drinking water out of a bottle? Would you? What are the precautionary yeah. things that are practical? Well, again, it's it's good, better, best. You know, if if it's a choice between. Um, a sugar-sweetened beverage and water out of a plastic bottle, you know, of course drink water out of the plastic bottle. And I'm not saying that bottled water is a major source of concern. Um, but let's remember that we have come a long way from eating foods that came directly from nature or grown locally, prepared fresh, um, you know, and um, cooked in natural um Pots. And wear pots. Yeah, <laughs> iron pots and the like. Yeah. And we just don't know the how each of the thousands of chemicals we're exposed to. And perhaps more concerningly, the interactions, the, the millions of interactions between each of these thousands of chemicals, what they might be doing for us. So my advice, well, you know, I, I, it's funny, you know, going to medical school, you see so many diseases. And if you have a, a slightly neurotic personality like I do, you know, you think you have basically every disease that you see in medical school. We all do. And I had leukemia twice, by the way. Yeah. Oh, I've had, yeah, <laughs> yes. And the, the only upside of it is when you get really worried about a disease, you learn all about it. Right. And so then I become very empathic about patients who happen to have it because I've, in a certain sense, worried about having it too. Um, but, you know, we can't, we can't, we can't live our lives, you know, in paranoia. So give me just one or two little tidbits that you might tell your, your kids. I think the most important thing is to focus on eating a, a whole foods natural diet. That is, again, the base of the iceberg. You know, why worry about the tip of the iceberg when it's the base that's going to sink the Titanic here? Right. Um, let's, you know, let's get away from all of these processed, factory-produced, what we call fake foods. Let's base our diet on things that humans have been consuming since the dawn of our species. And if possible, consistent with our overly busy lifestyle, prepare some of them at home. Have a family meal so that we can nourish our children's bodies and also their spirits with good conversation around the dinner table. We're here with Dr. David Ludwig from Children's Hospital in Boston, his new book, Ending the Food Fight, which is a, a guide, to, uh, as you're describing, for kids to, to navigate that serpentine path between fast food and fake food. Uh, what, what are the parenting insights you can share for folks? I mean, I got the food stuff. Uh, there's probably a whole uh, uh, show we could do just on physical activity and, and, and getting kids to think differently about the role they play in the process. Well, for many families in America today, weight loss can seem a lot like warfare. Ironically, so much energy can go into conflict that there's very little left over to actually deal with the weight problem. Mm -hmm. One of the most common errors that I see parents making is that they raise young children excessively, too, too leniently, um, too permissively. 
young children, in the absence of clear guidelines uh, and limits from their parents about what and how to eat, will learn eating habits from our fast food culture, and especially the incessant food advertising to kids. So they develop these atrocious eating habits, and more likely than not, they'll gain too much weight. By the time they reach adolescence, and the doctor says that the kid is at risk for developing type 2 diabetes, the parents understandably become very worried. But the same parents that were too lenient with the young kids now try to clamp down in inappropriate ways, and that makes a bad situation worse. Because whereas young children need guidance, they're programmed to learn from their parents. They're developmentally willing and able to learn from their parents. Adolescents are a bit of the opposite. They need empowerment. They need to feel responsible um, and independent to a growing degree. And in fact, their future survival is dependent upon their ability to make um, decisions on their own. So when parents start to use coercive methods, like excessively restricting some foods, pressuring their kids to eat other foods, or even punishment, criticism, mm -hmm. incessant nagging, um, this just causes conflict. Did you hear that, Lisa? These, this incessant nagging part? I, I knew you were referring to that part. I knew it. Is this for both husbands and children, or just children? <laughs> <laughs> some women, some women would argue that there's no distinction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> You're just getting married, obviously. <laughs> it's still an away game for you. So the key here is age-appropriate parenting practices that can help convert conflict into cooperation. Um, we need to be raising young kids with clear limits and boundaries. You know, it's if a parent can't say no to some things, mm -hmm. like the gallon of ice cream in the supermarket, they're not going to be able to say yes to other things, like feeling good and good health. Well, the parent also has to set an example, because you can tell your kid, no, you can't have the ice cream, and then you sit down and, and eat the half gallon yourself. Okay, so let's talk about what we call the two pillars of parenting. The first is protecting the home environment. The basic idea here is, if it doesn't support health, don't bring it in the home, which doesn't mean that you have to give up treats and sweets entirely. Go out for ice cream once in a while and make it a celebration. But you can say no once in the supermarket when your kids are asking you for it, or you can try to say no every night when they nag you for it if it's sitting in the freezer. So instead, stock the home with nutritious and delicious foods that support everybody's health. So that the beauty of this approach is that whenever a child or any family member is in the home, they're going to be moved toward health in distinction to when they're out in society or unfortunately in the schools when the opposite is all too often the case. This helps the overweight child lose weight. It um, protects the lean child from developing a weight problem in the future, and the parents high cholesterol or high blood pressure probably improve as well. The second key parenting practice is modeling. You know how little kids, um, like a little girl, will see her mother sweeping the floor and she'll want to pick up the broom and sweep too? Yeah. She doesn't know it's a chore. She doesn't know that she's not supposed to like doing it. She sees her mother doing it and she wants to do it. Young kids are programmed like little ducklings and print upon their mother Young kids are programmed to learn from their parents. Let's take advantage of this by modeling healthful behaviors. The kids will learn those behaviors, and they will stay ingrained for life. Now, modeling 
Um, the, ben- the power here is that sometimes parents will do something for their kids that they wouldn't do for themselves. So the kids benefit, but they benefit too. I was struck that you gave one very concrete bit of advice, uh, which was to have breakfast, <laughs> which I was sort of surprised by, actually. Mm-hmm. That it, would, it just seemed like it wasn't equally important as some of the other points, but as I've done my own research in this area, I appreciate why you're saying that. Why'd you focus on breakfast? Right? Why not focus on lunch or dinner? Well, breakfast um, is, the, you know, they say it's the most important meal of the day, and, and whoever they are, they're probably right. Um, <laughs> you know, kids have been... Anybody I has, is, is, you know, it, by the time breakfast rolls around, we've been fasting for 10, 12, 14 hours from our last meal. Um, and hormones in the body that relate to stress and starvation rise early in the morning. If we don't put food into our body, if we don't fuel our metabolism at that point, that starvation re- response continues to mount throughout the morning. It flips a switch in the brain. Once that happens and the brain thinks, wait a second, mission control, we have a problem. It upregulates hunger throughout the day. So one of the, you know, we, what we call the, uh, the SAD, the standard adolescent diet, you know, is to roll out of bed last thing in the morning, don't eat anything till lunch, probably eat one of these atrocious school lunches, which is just a, you know, a disguise for a fast food meal. And then throughout the afternoon and evening, be gorging, overeating. And that sets up this vicious cycle where the kid then winds up sick to his stomach in the morning and doesn't want breakfast. Right. In that situation, weight loss can almost be impossible. We're working against our biology. You know, the goal of our work in this book and, and our research is to line up biology with behavior. If when you get biology right, the effort you put into behavior change propels you forward. If you don't, you put in all this energy and it's just like spinning your wheels. So the first step to get out of that cycle is to begin just a tiny little breakfast, just even one apple, you know, or, or, or an orange, and then slowly eat a little less at night. And then over a week or two, begin to increase breakfast and decrease the late evening eating. And lastly, um, I want to say that breakfast doesn't have to be a production. We don't have to make eggs hollandaise. There are so many ways of putting together a balanced, nutritious meal that will support our metabolism.
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat and OEA which curbs your appetite with just two capsules a day smart metabolic burn by brain MD can kickstart your metabolism fight stubborn body fat especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey right now save over 30% on smart metabolic burn at getsmartburn.com the lowest price anywhere that's getsmartburn.com don't delay transform your life with smart metabolic burn from brain MD these statements have not been evaluated by the food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.